We have a new show at Turpentine that's been in the works for a long time, Company Breakdowns. We dive into S1s and Series B and beyond companies, interviewing founders and investors to break down the companies. First episode is on Rubrik, which IPO'd this week. Upcoming episodes cover Reddit, Databricks, and more. Subscribe at the link in the description or search for Company Breakdowns on YouTube or in the podcast platform of your choice. Welcome to Econ 102, where economist Noah Smith and I make sense of what's happening in the news, technology, business, and beyond through the lens of economics. Let's jump right in. I thought we'd bring Itai on because I think he has an interesting perspective on the economy uh, that differs in some ways from from Noah's, um, but is is uh, complementary and might help our audience get uh, get smarter in understanding what's uh, what's going on. So we're here to have a discussion, um, but also to educate our our audience a bit and go 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 a bit deeper. M- maybe you could start with uh, Noah, uh, maybe just doing a, a rehashing on uh, why uh, we should be a little bit op- optimistic in in the U.S. about how how the economy's uh, looking, h- how it's performed. And uh, what to what to look forward to in terms of the right. sort of underlying numbers and fundamentals of, of the economy. Well, so I mean, it's very hard to find economic numbers that are bad. <laughs> you know, things that are bad about the economy right now. Everybody who wants a job has a job. Um, we sort of to the to the point where we used to complain about how hard it was to get a job, and now we've sort of forgotten that and almost just assume that job is the natural state of the world for everybody. And the last time that happened. Well, I guess, you know, to some degree in like 2019, but then really in like the late 90s, you know, it was the last time we thought, oh, job is just something you can just get if you want. Um, Because except for, you know, the brief interruption of COVID, people have had, we've had high employment for a long time now. And of course, we had high inflation for a couple of years, uh, but that has, has, you know, pretty much come down. Um, Inflation is by most measures back pretty much to a like normal, what we think of as a normal low level. And, um, and so then, you know, asset prices are up. So if you, uh, if you're in the stock market, you're, you've made some good money, uh, your house prices are, you know, decent. Um, you know, they're, they're, they're kind of flat, but yeah. So, so if you look at people's wealth overall, people have been paying down their debts you know, we do this uh, survey of consumer finances where they go around and ask like a bunch of people about their finances and people have money in their checking accounts more than they used to. They're paying down their debts more than they used to. They've got lower like, you know, credit card debt payments and, you know, despite high interest rates um, and people are financially healthier. And so it's 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 pretty hard to see ways in which the economy is doing bad. Like there'll always be somebody who says the economy is doing bad because, you know, of course, we have bad news about, you know, political stuff and protests in the streets and fights over DEI or whatever. And so there's this national unrest. So there's always this urge. I think people want to want to put this into material terms. People want to say, well, the economy is bad. But honestly, um, it's not. And it's getting just really harder and harder to find some economic statistics that suggest that the economy is bad. How's that for opening statement? It's great. Itai, why don't you uh, jump in and see how, uh, uh, say how you see things from your perspective? Right. Um, So I don't fully disagree with Noah regarding how the economy has done or has done or has so far handled kind of the rate shock or some of the inflationary shock. 
Uh, I think where we disagree is that I don't necessarily take what has recently happened as evidence of what is going to happen. So um, we have a variety of tools which we look at um, a little bit over 10 points that we focus on leading indicators and leading data. Um, by the way, I would argue that some things are very bad, like manufacturing data and some of the other things that have been in deep contraction, um, which are potentially leading indicators to what the economy may do. So my entire focus as a money manager uh, is focusing on what we believe the next 12 to 18 months are going to look like. And the key here is that there has been a long and variable lag between how monetary policy has historically influenced the economy um, than what is currently visible. So, you know, if you look at headlines from mid-2007 or even mid-2008, um, 2000, um, and, and even going back into the 90s, it's very common that people say the economy is just fine and the Fed was able to pull it off. You know, I've seen a, a recent article literally from August 2007 saying something very similar. So it doesn't necessarily take into effect what can happen and what's going to happen when some of these refinancing are going are, are to come in and when the actual influence of high rates is going to be felt. Uh, and I'm happy to dive into some of these specifics of why we believe that uh, a recession is actually very likely. Uh, please, please do, Itai. Yeah, uh, flesh it out. Sure. So, no, you started with, with employment. Uh, you discussed, you know, everybody that wants to have a job has a job, et cetera. Uh, I don't disagree with that. That The labor market has been, uh, I think, one of the tightest, if not the tightest of hist in history. Uh, and we have to keep in mind that there's been a massive wall of money that was created post-COVID um, that we're still, you know, somewhat going through. Um, so looking back into uh, employment numbers, what we're looking for versus the underlying actual NFP numbers, which uh, there's been some issues with them. There's been a pretty big discrepancy between uh, things like payroll and actual actual employment um, that throughout the past year. But even if you take that out uh, of account, uh, it's the rate of change. And the rate of change has been getting worse. So both opening jobs as far as jolts has been decelerating recently, uh, which leads us to somewhat of an increase in the unemployment rate. So historically speaking, when the unemployment rises more than half a percent from its average 12 months, in the post-war period, that's always meant a recession. And usually a recession comes in when you're at about 0.2 and rising. Um, right now, the situation is around 0.3, so we're not quite at a threshold, um, but ha that has been rising. There's also the leading employment index. So if you're looking at the confidence board, that's a part of the leading economic indicators. It's actually been negative for 12 straight months. So, you know, the soft landing argument is that we had too tight of a labor market and, you know, we're actually going kind of towards normalization. Uh, my argument is that it's very difficult to predict when that actually happens, because once unemployment starts picking up, historically speaking, when you get to these thresholds, they continue to accelerate. And it's very difficult to know ahead of time uh, that that's actually going to stop. So we do see evidence of the labor market deteriorating. So it's going to be interesting to, to see um, where it's going to go. Um, regarding inflation, we're under the assumption that inflation is primarily a monetary phenomena. Uh, I know there is clearly, you know, supply, supply chains and things like that. Um, but there's been a really good lead with the growth of M2 money supply and how inflation looks 12 months forward. M2 money supply is collapsing at some of the fastest rates in history. Um, historically, that also meant a recession uh, at the price of, of, you know, 
getting inflation back down towards target. I would argue that it's actually not a target being at, you know, mid threes, with course, this, you know, being potentially sticky. So it's still TBD to see if it can come down very quickly this year. I'm actually in the camp that it does. Um, but as it does, it probably triggers a recession as well as it would come uh, come down a little bit quicker. Uh, there's actually a bunch of more uh, points to cover when it comes to that. And I don't want to get into too, too, too much of a monologue. So I want to see if there's any comment from no. And if not, we can uh, take it to some of the other indicators. Yeah. So, so that's interesting. You know, um, if you're talking about whether a recession is going to happen, which you're, is what you're talking about, that's always a lot harder than assessing the current, you know, health and state of the economy right now. Like a, a forecast is much harder than a now cast. And the best forecasting methods in the world for, you know, macroeconomic stuff are very, very um, inaccurate. So, you know, uh, I used to know a guy at Renaissance Technologies who would always say, um, who would always say that all financially useful data costs money. That's why macro data is free. And so, you know, macro stuff is very, very hard to, to trade on. Uh, maybe Ray Dalio can do it, but he's not telling us his, his secrets. Um, anyway, uh, you know, forecasting, um, there's lots of studies of forecasting methods, um, surveys of private forecasters involved, blah, blah, more rigorous models. They're all pretty bad at forecasting recessions. And, um, you know, they all tend to forecast a whole bunch of recessions that don't happen and to miss the recessions that do happen. Um, and so we, you know, our, our watchers and listeners should take this with a grain of salt. You know, everything we talk about when we're talking about how the economy might do six months from now, a year from now, especially a year from now, uh, is just a lot of, a lot of guesswork. And people shouldn't think that there's some kind of, you know, science where we, we see all this stuff coming um, ahead of time. This is something money managers and macro private sector macro people will just argue with back and forth. And then, you know, academic economists won't even comment on and fed people would if they were allowed to comment on, but they're not anyway. So I guess that's a, that's a long preamble of saying from, you know, when we're talking about the future, you shouldn't trust anything we say. Um, but okay. So employment, the labor market has weakened a little bit in the last couple months. But employment is not a leading indicator. Employment is typically a lagging indicator. It's typically the last thing to respond. So the fact that the other stuff seems to be doing pretty well, you know, growth seems to be doing really well on all this stuff tells me that the, the weakening of the labor market um, is not a harbinger recession necessarily because, you know, um, because the other stuff, you know, we would we would expect it to follow the other stuff instead of to lead it. It's not really a leading indicator. Um, in terms of manufacturing stuff, that is more of a leading indicator for sure. But what's interesting is that factory construction continues to boom. And if you look at, you know, how much um, American companies are investing in building new factories in America, uh, or even foreign companies investing in building new factories in America, you see that it's at, highs that it hasn't been for our lifetimes. It is, you know, in, and I'm, when I say highs, I don't mean in nominal terms. I mean, in inflation adjusted terms, once you adjust for the cost of building new factories, you know, factory construction is at this, this, you know, legendary high right now. And so, you know, I, of course, some of that is due to policy. Some of that's due to industrial policy, right? Obviously. But um, you figure that if these, if these companies didn't, they, they can't live on subsidies alone. 
right? If they didn't expect some kind of demand to be coming, they wouldn't be um, they wouldn't be building factories at such an incredible rate as they are now. So that that's a sign of optimism on their part, whether or not that optimism is justified, right? Remember, once again, we're reading tea leaves. We're trying to say, okay, the the people who make factories must be optimistic because they're building a bunch of factories, and so maybe they have some information we don't about the state of the economy at the ground level. Uh, and then the third thing is about the Fed and rates. I I um. As for whether or not the Fed rate hikes have had time to affect the economy, that's a complex and very interesting question. Uh, so I think that the best argument for recession is that a long protracted period of high interest rates will eventually break something in the financial markets. And that, you know, especially I think the most likely thing that will break is commercial property uh, because that's also being hit by the rise of remote work. So we're seeing, you know, no one wants to go back to the office. I mean, some people are going back, but no one wants to. And so, you know, remote work has plateaued at a much higher level than it was pre-pandemic. And, um, you know, in addition, all the commercial property developers are highly, highly leveraged. And so when you're highly leveraged, you have to roll over your debt. And when you have to roll over your debt at higher interest rates, that kills your business because these, you know, there's not a lot of margin for error in that business. You know, so when interest rates go up, a lot of property developers can, can vaporize. Housing, uh, private housing developers are doing all right um, because housing, you know, housing prices rose. There's still pretty robust demand, uh, you know, millennials buying their own houses. Uh, but commercial property uh, could be in big trouble. And I think that the the best argument for, you know, if, if you're saying what will cause a recession, I think the best argument is that a long protracted period of high interest rates will cause the commercial property market to go bust, which will cause banks to become weaker because suddenly all the money that they lent to commercial property developers is now not coming back, right? Those are bad loans on their books. And then they will pull back lending to the rest of the economy. The, you know, the financial channel of lending will get weaker and then, you know, um, borrowing costs will get higher. And so businesses all across America will not be able to borrow. They will not expand. They will not hire, blah, blah, blah. And that's sort of, that's the kind of most likely recession story, I think, right now. Um, and so I do think, I do think that this is definitely a, a worry. Um, I just, uh, I don't think we've seen this manifest yet. I think when you look at some of the, the numbers of, of, you know, quote unquote zombie companies that aren't paying, that aren't able to cover their interest, uh, payments, um, except by borrowing more, uh, you do see the, you do see an uncomfortably high number of those. Uh, those are probably you know, uh, concentrated in the property sector. Um, but then I don't think we've, yeah. So, so this is a way that a recession could happen. I, you know, I don't think we'll go an infinite amount of time without a recession. I think we will have a recession again sometime. And if you ask me, what's the likeliest thing to cause it that we can see right now? I mean, maybe it'll be some big shock, some, you know, massive oil price spike, some sort of, um, you know, thing like that. But I think that in terms of things we can see coming down the, the pipe or pike, I'm not actually sure what that expression is right now. I think that long period of low of high interest rates leading to a pain in the commercial property sector is probably the thing I'm most scared of. Hey, everybody, Eric here with a word from our sponsors. What do you think? Right. Um, so you said a few things. Let's uh, let's uh, I, I actually agree with you about a lot of it. Um, Completely, obviously, employment is definitely a lagging indicator. I would argue the housing market is actually in trouble across the board because even with normal residential housing, 
uh, millennials and such, you're seeing one of the lowest transaction volumes in decades, right? Like mortgage applications are down massively over the last couple of years. So the housing market, I would, I would argue, has definitely cooled. Uh, I live in Austin where you see home prices are actually starting to go down quite quickly over the last few months. Um, but that's, that's kind of besides the point. Boo. Uh, I think the main <laughs> um, <laughs> boo, right? It's okay. I bought it in 2019, so I'm still doing okay. Um, I think there's actually talking about pro forecast. And I'm, I'm a big uh, Austin booster. I think Austin is the future. I would agree with you. I moved here from California before the pandemic, right, to express a, a real estate thesis, honestly. Uh, so it worked pretty well. Um, but I would argue, you know, on the macro front, um, there are two things that have historically worked very well in predicting recessions, despite obviously it's very difficult to read the tea leaves, um, what have you, especially when it comes to the exact timing. But those two things are really the yield curves, which we have one of the most prolonged inverted yield curve periods and one of the steepest ones in the post-war period. And particularly when you're looking at the three-month by 10-year yield curve, when you're starting to disinvert from where you were, the countdown for recession is you know, pretty, pretty imminent. Like I would say within the next 12 months or so, that's typically when that happens. Uh, and we're seeing that type of disinversion now, and typically that leads unemployment as well. Now, the second one is the depth of contraction for LEIs, leading economic indicators, which we discuss. Obviously, employment is not one of them, uh, but we have a variety of them. And there's never been a time in the post-war period where leading economic indicators, where manufacturing is one of them, dropped more than the four, four and a half percent threshold, and we do not trigger a recession. Um, leading economic indicators now have been contracting for 20 months straight and are at negative seven and a half percent. That worries me a lot. Um, only 1974 and 2008 exceeded that period. And when you have a combination of the yield curve inversion and you have LEIs at this type of contraction, again, this could be the first time this doesn't happen, but it's never been uh, a, a period that those indicators signal that type of recession and it did not happen. Um, now, if for some reason the economy stays afloat, the yield curve disinverts and LEIs go back into expansion and we do not experience a recession, that would actually be the first false negative uh, that they've, that they've uh, contributed. So these are the kind of things that we track and we realize the risk of recession is quite high. The way it happens is I agree with you that that's a likely scenario, particularly with zombie companies, if rates stay higher, if we get stagflation, et cetera. Um, but it's difficult to predict what the cause will actually be or what the excuse will be. Could be some kind of shock, could be geopolitical, could be something else. It's very difficult to see uh, up front, but we'll, we'll obviously know in hindsight when it happens. But it's almost like the way I like to think about it is we can go into a room and see that it's full of gunpowder. We don't know what's going to cause the fire. So when I go into the room right now, I believe that it's full of gunpowder, given the set of leading indicators that is telling us that things could be rough, particularly given high valuation, things like that. Um, regarding the kind of factory reshoring, I, I think that's a part of a bigger theme of just nearshoring, reshoring, given this deglobalization trend that we're seeing. Uh, I think that could be a big part of it. We just saw Mexico exceeding China as... Um, the largest importer, which is a really big, a, a big news. Um, so, you know, French shoring, near shoring, whatever you want to call it, I think it has a big impact, but also government spending, right? If the government's currently running the largest deficit outside of war pandemic uh, period in, in history, um, I, I don't think that's sustainable. 
um, and it's running a massive deficit to GDP, and it's continuing to do so into a very high interest rate environment. Uh, a big part of the GDP boost we've seen and the reason things are being afloat, I believe, has something to do with that. So these are just telling you that, that you know, if, if we do get a period of inflation that's higher, by the way, nearshoring would contribute to higher inflation structurally. So if you do see some of these things that lead to higher for longer with this level of government spending, um, the number of risk factors is just substantial. And you could argue that the economy has kind of been artificially kept there uh, afloat due to due to all this fiscal spending. Well, you know, maybe um, I think that if you saw the economy uh, kept afloat due to fiscal spending, you'd see that manifest in inflation uh, because you did really see that during COVID and after COVID. Um, and in 2021, you certainly saw this. But, you know, the, the mechanism for the fiscal spending, keeping the economy afloat is for the government to spend a bunch of money. And then people take that money and go out and spend it. And, you know, prices of things get pushed up. But prices of things are not getting pushed up. We're still seeing inflation, you know, come down. Like it's still, we, we still are in this deflationary sort of, uh, you know, looking situation. De I'm not, de I'm sorry, not deflationary, disinflationary, which means inflation is still positive, obviously, but it is coming down, you know, from where it was. Um, I think that if we were seeing, we, we've had fairly big deficits, fairly big government deficits over the last year, uh, you know, over all of 2023, we saw that. It's not a new thing. And I think that if you saw, um, if the economy was being kept afloat by fiscal stimulus, you would definitely see, um, uh, you'd see inflation from that. Instead, we're seeing the opposite of that. Now, of course, the, the you know, the, the um, Treasury, the federal government, fiscal policy isn't the only thing that affects inflation. We got monetary policy, too. So exactly. We got the Fed. And so, the you know, if the if the um, in, a, in a very simple sort of like hydraulic model, we just imagine aggregate demand is like water that you pump in and take out of the economy. Right. Uh, like in the 1950s, people loved this sort of thinking about the economy this way. So if you if you pump water in with federal deficits and you take it out via you know, uh, burning money, essentially, uh, higher interest rates, et cetera, which is, you know, you talked about thinking about the monetary view of things and M2 coming down. That's exactly that, you know, then, um, those things, those things will cancel out. And so I think that, um, the, the fiscal tightening, the fiscal, uh, loose fiscal policy and tight monetary policy will act against each other and have been canceling each other out to some degree. I think that, um, tight, and uh, and this may have this may have been exactly the recipe we needed to get the disinflationary boom. I'm I'm pretty I'm kind of uh, you know mildly annoyed at how few people recognize how amazing it is to get a disinflationary boom. There's there's no situation that we've ever had before when inflation has come down like this without a recession. Like it, it you know and I, when I say a recession, I don't mean a recession that eventually happens because if you on a long enough time horizon, you will have a recession someday. What I mean is that. Uh, the way it's supposed to work is that you cut, you know, you, you raise interest rates or, or maybe cut deficits, but usually just raise interest rates. That makes people spend less. It, it makes it harder for businesses to borrow. They stop borrowing. They stop hiring. They, people stop shopping, blah, blah, blah. The economy gets hurt and that brings down inflation. And when you look at the 1980s, the early 1980s, when Paul Volcker raised interest rates to defeat the 70s inflation, and, you know, you saw exactly this happening. Textbook, you know, you saw the Rust Belt. You saw companies just you know, apocalypse. And then, and then people stopped spending and then inflation came down and then it's eventually stayed down. 
But this time you didn't have to have that. And this is pretty amazing. We, so many of us thought that that would have to happen. I, I thought that that would have to happen. I, I didn't think it would have to be, I didn't think it was going to be like 80s level, but I thought that we'd get some sort of like at least small recession out of raising interest rates before the inflation came down, right? The, the, the lack of spending, lack of demand is what's supposed to drive the prices down. Instead, we got the prices, uh, you know, the, the inflation coming down, and in some cases, prices actually going down, like, you know, oil and gas. Um, we got that to come down without uh, a loss of, of consumer spending. Consumer spending held up, and that's kind of amazing. And I, you know, that's kind of amazing that we were able to do that. Of course, we got some help from the fact that, you know, oil prices came back down somewhat and that, you know, um, all this time, like shipping was becoming easier, blah, 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 blah. Um, and so, so we got help, right? But, uh, but at the same time, um, this can't have been the whole story. The, uh, the, the, our, our government did a really good job there. Anyway, end rant. But um, in terms of whether we're getting a, uh, a recession coming here, you know, I know that there's there's massive uh, lists of of leading and lagging indicators, <coughs> but one problem is that it's sort of like um, out of sample predictions are are really hard. And you know, before COVID, I spent a lot of time writing for Bloomberg about how we were likely to get at least a small recession given yield curve inversion. You know, I've I've read all the papers on yield curve inversion. I know that it's typically one of the better leading indicators. Um, and so, and we, and, and we did with, 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 or without COVID, we got it around, around that time. Not in the, uh, the time horizon predicted. We were supposed to get a recession in 2019 from that yield curve inversion, given the lags that we had seen in previous, uh, recessions from, you know, the yield curve inversion. We didn't, uh, we got a, we got a, a technical recession from COVID a year later. Right. But but yield curve inverted and it didn't seem to do anything. And then it then it uninverted and that didn't seem to do anything. And so, you know, the yield curve inversion is a good macroeconomic indicator, good leading indicator as leading indicators go. Right. But that's like saying, you know, that's like saying, um, yeah, I don't know. Like, anyway, I uh, <laughs> it's not a very good. There's no indicators that are really great. The, the lead, you know, the yield curve inverts and then recessions don't happen sometimes. That happens. That only happened, uh, I believe, twice from there's a... Uh, happened a number of times. And look at the, look at the three yeah, months by 10 years, not, not the two by 10. Three months by 10 is, uh, is more accurate. Okay, but remember, that's not necessarily what we would have said, you know, back in, the, back in 2016, because the, the two by 10 was what everyone was talking about back then. The point being that that one of these indicators has held up better than the others, given our much, our more recent data points. That's you know the, there's only a few data points here. We're really you know we're running a regression with five data points. Like I can tell you that's that's you know that's not going to give you a large sample. Eleven, but yeah, yeah, no, there's 11, 11 data points. That's right. There, you know, it's it's very easy to overfit to eleven data points, right? I don't know, like if you're in the audience, overfitting means that like. You, you observe some complex pattern from just a couple of data points and then you project, project that out. And of course, you're just over extrapolating from those few data points. So if you're in the audience, you don't know what overfitting is, you can just Google it, Google image search overfitting and it will get, like show you a, a silly little picture that displays what that is. But then of course, 
if you're in the audience and you do like machine learning, you obviously know about it and people are yelling at you all day about it. And you're like, God, I know about overfitting. Shut up. Anyway, so you got to always think about like who we're, who we're talking to here. But, but okay, so it's kind of like every, every recession had a yield curve inversion ahead of it, but not every yield curve inversion leads to a recession. More or less, more or less. That's, that's pretty true. Hey, everybody. Eric here with a word from our sponsors. I would say that, you know, so when, when uh, people at the Fed, you know, economists at the Fed look at this, they think the yield convert, they think the yield curve is the second best leading indicator. I agree. I agree with that. Well, oh, wait, what would you say is the best? I, I want to hear what, what, you, what you say is the best. Uh, I believe that the combination of LEIs, uh, LEIs, rate of change in employment plus yield curve inversion has been the best indicator in combination. Okay. Oh, interesting. I don't think there's a perfect indicator. Um, but I think there is a variety of indicators that if they all if they all agree on something, it just increases its probability. There's, you know, the the way I think about things is just in terms of probabilities, right? Like nothing is obviously guaranteed, um, but it just increases the probability of an event happening if there's a variety of these things um, happening. Right. And to your point, you know, having uh, zombie companies, etc., just keeps keeps kind of increasing its its uh, probability. Regarding, um, I think what you said, you said something very interesting that fiscal and monetary policy kind of counter each other out in 2023. I would argue that the Fed's program that was set up post the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank that allowed the banking sector to basically offload their bad debt um, and get liquidity during that period of time was a version of stealth QE that happened last year. And it increased liquidity in the system. So if you look at overall reserves, uh, treasury general account, all those things. We have a liquidity model. Liquidity actually increased last year because of all these programs. That program is set to expire in March. I would argue the Fed would probably either end QT or uh, extend this program because we'll be in a lot of trouble if they don't. So to that point, I, I still believe liquidity was increasing last year. I believe there was more inflow than net outflow, which is one of the reasons I think spending has held up. It could be, but so that that is... That is interesting. If we saw the, uh, a shit ton of liquidity being pumped into the system at the same time as the federal government was running a big deficit and that was the keeping the economy on like a sugar high or whatever you want to call it, or like, you know, pump, just pumping up demand, right? We'd see inflation. We'd right. see inflation right. accelerate. We didn't see inflation accelerate. That didn't happen. Inflation came down in 2023. It came down a lot. That's what tells me that what we're seeing is not primarily just an economy kept afloat by monetary and fiscal policy because that would have caused inflation. So why didn't we see inflation post 0809 when the Fed reinstituted QE programs? Like because the banking system was dead. The banking system was was destroyed. I would argue that it wasn't dead in 2018 or 2019, right? It was dead at the very beginning, but we've had QE we had QE forever in 2013, 2014. We've had QE so many times. We had 85 billion a month of money printing. We had zero rates for such a long period of time. We really only saw inflation pick up uh, after COVID, because we had a massive combination of monetary and fiscal policy combined uh, to a really high degree, because I would argue that there is a demographic aspect to inflation um, that we don't have today. That's the biggest difference between now and the 1970s and 80s, because we actually have a very low birth rate. And uh, demographically speaking, the, the kind of like organic demand to push inflation is not here. 
So if you look at the period, so you, you talked about thinking about these things in a monetary way, right? You think about inflation as a monetary phenomenon and you talk about massive money printing after the Great Recession. If you look at a graph of M2, the broad money, you know, uh, uh, monetary base or broad money supply, the broad money supply is M2. If you look at, if you look at M2, it doesn't really go up at all. Uh, it, it doesn't accelerate. It just grows at the same steady, slow rate uh, after the Great Recession. Um, in COVID, it absolutely explodes. And then you saw inflation. So the the old monetarists who just looked at That's M2 true. and said, well, okay, you printed money. We're going to get inflation. are kind of winning here. They're winning. And if you look at the period in 08, 09, and, or 10 and 11, uh, when we kept doing QE, you see that someone was canceling the Fed out. And that someone was private banks because what was happening was the Fed was printing all this money and banks were taking the money and putting it in a vault. Now, of course, we both know that's not what exactly what happened. It was actually just items in a spreadsheet and the run up of reserves and blah, 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 blah. But what metaphorically in the textbook metaphor, we printed a bunch of money and banks stuck in a vault and did nothing with it. And so that's why the actual amount of money in circulation didn't increase. Uh, and that's why we printed all that money and we didn't get inflation. In COVID, we printed all the money and it did circulate, right? It got lent out to everybody and it got spent and spent and spent. And then after COVID, we got the inflation. I agree. They're basically a recapitalization of the banking system because that's effectively what they were. The banking system went broke and then QE programs were kind of a recapitalization of the banking system. I fully believe that inflation is somewhat of a monetary phenomena, but you're saying inflation is coming out. Inflation is 100% coming down, but a lot of it has to do with the base effect. Um, we're still over 3%. I think the last mile is going to be very difficult given this like counter-globalization trends we're seeing and other things like that. Um, but it's not the same, right? Like post 2020, 2021, when we saw this massive demand boost and this wall of money created, 30 cents of every dollar has been basically printed out. It was a combination of fiscal and monetary policy. And then we got this initial rush. And then obviously the disinflation period, fully agree, there's a big lead to M2 kind of money supply. Um, but that doesn't mean that, you know, it's this immaculate disinflation. It's just because we had a massive wall of money that was created um, that is basically unprecedented in, in, in modern economics, right? The amount of money that was just created in this type of way out of thin air, but it doesn't change the fact that demographically, I still think that the long-term trends are deflationary. They're more Japan-like than anything else. I agree with that. So in terms of the long-term trend pushing pushing toward deflation, um, of course, productivity growth matters, trade will matter. There's a bunch of other stuff, but I think demographically, you're absolutely right. Um, although I will say that attempts to predict inflation using demographics have been very frustrating in the past because um, we don't, you know, the effect is kind of complex, but anyway, um, but I, I agree. I think that um, right now what we're seeing is that policy isn't doing a lot because we've seen <coughs> the, you know, the money supply kind of going down, but fiscal deficits are still pretty big. I don't see a big push from policy in either direction. Um, if you look at the housing market, so what's interesting is that um, – it, before the Great Recession, housing was the like, and even during the Great Recession, housing was the entire business cycle. Like housing, you know, uh, there's there's a couple papers by uh, Ed Lemer on this, which are really good. Housing basically is the most interest rate sensitive part of the economy. It's you know this big durable thing that we can either build or not build it. It's subject to these big boom bust cycles, Agreed. and um, 
And so housing really was the economy. If you look at housing now, you see housing starts have not cratered. Um, you, you told me about how no one's building new housing, but they are. Um, in fact, people are building housing, new housing starts in November of 2023. They're building them, but they're not buying them. Right. And so maybe we're going to build a whole bunch of houses that nobody's going to want to buy. Seems that uh, way. But I don't know. I mean, like, basically, we have to say that the, you know, it's some sort of malinvestment, blah, blah, maybe. Uh, maybe all the people, you know, so the thing is that a lot of economic indicators are based on expectations. So the yield curve is based on expectations, right? If you're talking about the, using the yield curve to forecast stuff, uh, the yield curve, for those who don't know, is the um, is the the difference between short-term and long-term interest rates. That's really what we're talking about here. We're talking about the, the term spread on, of interest rates. And um, if you look, long-term interest rates depend on the bets of bond traders. That depends on the market expectations. So if we believe that, that you know, markets op- are, are reasonably good or, or very good forecasters of future, you know, economic activity, we need to, we sort of need to believe that to believe that the yield curve is a good indicator. And yet, if we believe that, then we also look at housing starts and manufacturing and like factory construction. And we say, okay, well, on the other hand, um, you know, these people are all optimistic. So maybe all the people building factories are dumb and there won't be any demand for their new factories products and they, their factories will go bust and it'll be a big bust. And maybe all the people building new houses are dumb and there'll be no demand for the new houses and they'll go bust. And maybe the bond traders are smart and that's why the yield curve is, a, you know, is, is inverted. Do we really think that like all the people building all the factories and the houses are dumb and that the bond traders are, are smart? You know, like... Why don't some of the bond traders go go arbitrage and work in the home building and factory building industry if there's so much if there's so much stupidity in those industries and people are being so dumb? Um, so anyway, I don't know. That's a that's a probably stupid economic argument. But um, but I guess the the point is that there's lots of people who are behaving as if they have massive confidence. Well, how how much of it is actually planned in a, in advance, right during the low interest rate period of time? Because I know. A lot of these housing projects, um, one of the things I look mm. at is the architectural billing index. So I think it's a really le- interesting leading indicator on the housing market because you can see how many hours architects were built for. And that tends to lead housing starts. So t- take in mind that there, there's sometimes a two to five year lead time when it comes down to all these kind of housing starts because it's not like you're getting permits to build and then you build it the next day. So, you know, to me, that's pretty pretty lagging of an indicator when when it comes to that. Maybe in two years, it would be kind of following the following the yield curve. I think more of a actual transaction volume of what's happening in the housing market is a better indicator of you know actual actual demand for housing. Um, maybe, but then I think that we did see a a dip in in housing starts. Uh, we saw a dip that's now coming back, and I think that the how many houses are bought is going to be a lagging indicator compared to how many houses are built because houses are built before they are bought, unlike in China where houses are bought before they are built. Um, but then houses in America are built before they're bought. And um, uh, generally speaking. And so I think that we did see a dip when in 2022, we saw a dip. And I think that low transaction volumes now are probably you know downstream of that. Um, but then what we see now is we see rising real incomes as inflation has gone down, 
the natural sort of nominal wage increases that everybody's getting and other income increases are translating into real income increases. So real income is going back up, real wages going back up. That is going to increase confidence and I think increase demand for housing. And I think that the fact that housing starts have held up well is probably at least partially due to property developers saying, okay, people are going to want some housing. Um, there's also structural demand for housing because work from home, um, work from home requires that you have space in your home to work. And so I think that a lot of the decrease in demand for commercial property will result in a concomitant, uh, I really love the word concomitant, it'll result in an increase in demand for residential property because people will be doing home offices, right? They'll be switching from, you know, working outside to like working inside, and they're going to want more inside. And so they're going to want bigger houses, you know, and uh, and stuff like that. And so I think that that's going to gonna add uh, demand as well. Um, and so that's, I think that the people building, if I had to guess, I'd say that the people building sort of anticipate that, that, you know, improvement, that, that, that robust demand from like work from home for residential property. But, I, you know, I don't really know. Um, I, uh, I just go by like some housing finance blogs that I read and, you know, they say like things are, are not, not bad right now. How do you follow the unaffordability issue, though? Because the biggest issue in housing is that it's generally, uh, you know, it's I think it's one of the most unaffordable housing markets in history now because rates are as high as they are and prices haven't corrected nearly as much, which because so many people are actually locked in, it's much below market rates. Um, you know, I think I read somewhere the average rate is 3.1, 3.2%. You know, the mortgage rates today are six and a half, seven percent so it's a massively unaffordable market and still people won't move until rates come down. So what's interesting is that in historical cycles, uh, the last two really, uh, the markets took, you know, the market only started going lower um, when the Fed actually started cutting rates, both in 08, uh, when the Fed started cutting rates was when equities in both housing started dropping substantially and also in 2000. So in a weird way, I feel like lower rates would release a lot of housing inventory because people are stuck now and they don't want to move. Yeah. So in in kind of that weird way, that's very counterintuitive. If we do get lower rates, I do think it's going to release a lot of inventory and could pressure prices lower, which could really hit the wealth effect um, that I think you're referring to, which what makes people feel wealthy and what makes them spend a bunch of money. Right. The, the thing about housing is that, you know, and we talk about this in the context of like the Yimby NIMBY battles a lot. But the, the, the fundamental fact of housing is that what's good for homeowners is bad for home buyers. Yeah. So if you're looking to tell a negative story about the economy, you can all or a positive story, you can always find something in the housing market. If house prices, you know, go up, you can say, well, things are great because people are feeling wealthier. Or you can say things are terrible because houses are less affordable. And this is going to crater transaction volumes and real economic activity. And if housing prices go down, you can say, well, this is great because now people are going to buy and buy, buy, buy. And then, you know, like we're going to see real economic activity go up, but you're going to say, oh, it's bad because wealth effect is going to go down. So people are going to spend less on other stuff. So that the, the housing prices themselves, you can spin a story very easily to go either way, no matter which way the prices are going or, or prices or, you know, monthly mortgage payments, affordability of, of monthly mortgage payments are work the same way. I mean, you can spin a story either way. Right. But if, if, if housing prices go negative historically, like generally you would get a bad kind of a bad economy. So I, I, I do understand what you're saying, but I think it's, you know, if housing does go negative in a big way, it does impact the economy where kind of like gradual slow increases have been 
kind of the positive, um, what, what would cause that Goldilocks type of scenario? I, I agree. That is, that is what we want to see. But in, in the second half of 2022, we saw housing prices go down. We saw an actual drop in housing prices. Very marginal. Did the economy hurt, suffer uh, from this as it would have in the past? No. Yeah. Well, very marginal. I mean, like it was, it was a, that's a decent sized drop. That was the biggest drop since the, uh, since the 2007 crash. And it was bigger than any other drop on record except for the 2007 crash. That was a big drop. It was not the biggest drop. It was not, it's not 2008, right? It's not, it's not the apocalypse, but it was a, it was a hefty drop. It was, you know, a five, five, 10% correction. Yeah. But the point is that that's, that's like a big deal. That's, that's that historically speaking, that's a big drop. Like historically speaking, houses almost never have that kind of correction. Like you see that kind of correction in the stock market. You don't see that kind of correction in the housing market. Like that's a, you know, that's nationwide. That's big. You see that kind of correction in some local housing markets sometimes, but not nationwide. Not, well, I think you, you've never seen this type of appreciation, like what we saw between 2020 and 2021, that type of jump in housing prices was basically unprecedented, right? Really, you saw more appreciation than that before the big housing bust of 2007. But, and you didn't see that big of a, that big of a crash, but you did see, you did see, you know, a decrease that was pretty, um, if you look at, I mean, it depends on what, you know, what, what rate you look at, but if you look at the sort of monthly rates of change or the six month rates of change, this was like a bigger drop in housing prices in 2022 than we'd seen, you know, there was no recession. The economy is fine. And so I'm not so worried about that. Right. Uh, my, arg- my argument though, is that people don't, didn't really feel that the appreciation is just the appreciation was just so, uh, so quick and so extreme in 2020, 2021. So like that type of correction wasn't that felt by, by that many, but, but I do agree in 2022, you know, the wealth effect did obviously suffer because of both housing and the stock market have fallen, um, that year, but that year, I mean, you had a technical recession, but you didn't have a real recession. I would agree with you. So the the one indicator, by the way, I never got to say what the what the the magic indicator from the the economist's perspective was, and I kind of wanted to, to to say this, which is um, uh, the the share of risky debt. So mm-hmm. the the share of okay. risky debt in total borrowing turns out to be in several economics papers. They they said this is the best leading indicator, better than the yield curve, although the yield curve adds information. So basically the yield curve is predictions about the Fed, while risky debt is predictions about the financial system independent of the Fed. That's, uh, I think, an easy way to think of it. And uh, so the share of risky debt um, recently has not really gone up a ton. I think that we don't see a lot of crazy borrowers borrowing. I think the risk that we are we're not seeing a borrowing mania. Uh, we sort of did during like 2020, 2021, given all the money that the, the Fed had pumped into the economy and all the lending programs and blah, blah, blah. Why, why would you see a borrowing mania when, when rates have already risen? Right. So like it's expensive to borrow now, but everybody borrowed when they could, when rates were cheaper. That's right. So, so the, the scary story that we're tell that we're telling about a possible recession, which I agree is always possible, you know, like recession is possible. I'm not ruling it out. I'm not saying, ha, 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 the economy looks so strong today. You'll never dethrone us. Ah, we will reign for a thousand years. No. 
<laughs> That's not how it works. <laughs> Recessions can come at any time. All of our forecasting methods are terrible. Um, you know, when we say something's a good forecasting method, we mean it like, you know, it has like an R squared of like 0.1, right? Like you look at the R squared of these things, it's just insanely bad. Um, and so like, but like all these things are bad, but then, but then, um, basically the recession story that we're going to have to tell in order to have a recession is not people are now doing crazy shit that is about to crash right? It's going to have to be people did crazy shit a long time ago that got frozen into the system and that now much later are going to crash as a result from interest rates staying high enough for long enough. I think that's the story we have to tell to make ourselves believe in the recession. I mean, that's classic, classic male investment because rates were lower than they should have been and money was too easy to get. Right. And so, but it has to be, we have to have a couple things that are kind of unusual work for that story to work, which is number one, the crappy investments have to last very long, right? And there has to, they have to last a long time. So you often, you know, in 2007, the, the, the Fed raised interest rates a little bit and suddenly this whole house of cards just came crashing down, right? It wasn't, it didn't take very long to crash that whole house of cards back in 2007 and eight. Uh, but now what we'd have to look at commercial property, especially. Well, it went from, then rates went from uh, 2% to 5%. You know, that wasn't a, that's not a huge change. And it didn't, but it didn't take long. It, it well, maybe, but, but people were just over leveraged. Like how substantial a rate changes depends entirely on how much leverage there is in the system. I mean, they started raising rates in 04 and they only ended it in 07. So it was a pretty, you know, it took, it, it did take some, some time. I would argue that the popping of the dot-com bubble is what enabled the housing market to begin with, right? Because that's initially when they got to pretty low rates. For sure. But okay, but, um, and not just rates either, but just sort of a portfolio reallocation rotation. But yeah, I, I think that's absolutely right. Um, but then uh, what I'm saying is that for the recession story now uh, to make sense, uh, you know, with, with these indicators we're talking about, um, we've got to see people doing a lot of risky stuff in the past that survived till now and hasn't blown up despite now, you know, over a year of, of high interest rates and, you know, a, a much bigger rate hike than we saw from 2% to 5% in the 2000s. This is a much bigger and faster, much faster interest rate hike that we've seen now. I agree. And yet for all this stuff to not have collapsed yet and then reach some threshold where it all collapses, that would be unusual. I'm saying this is our story. This is our scary story we're sort of telling about how a recession might come soon. And I agree that the story is possible, but historically speaking, it would be kind of weird for it, for it to shake out that way. And, and you know, every, I guess every recession is different. So every recession is a bit weird. But, um, but yeah, I think that's, that's what we're looking at. Every time is a little bit different. If the Fed, for example, haven't stepped in and allowed all this excess liquidity to the banking system in March, I think we would already have been in a very bad recession, right? But um, Potentially, I think they only kick the can on the road because there are still a variety of bad investments, loans, and other things that have happened, especially across smaller companies that we don't see, um, some of those um, credit spreads and things like that. One of the things that I think is um, is quite interesting, um, speaking of all this type of reallocation of capital, to your point, is the amount of zombie companies, the amount of refinancing that has to happen. So while very large companies are actually playing the yield curve in reverse because they're able to lock in a ton of debt 
2020 and 2021 for very low rates. And what they're doing right now is they're putting it in short-term treasuries, making a lot of money. Even Apple itself sitting on so much cash is able to massively benefit from that. So in a weird way, I believe that when rates go lower, you're going to see a lot of that effect um, releasing itself into the system, not necessarily when it's uh, sure, the longer it stays higher, the more risk is built into the system. But then that popping moment happens when actually rates go lower and then enable all that supply from a variety of different places. That's a long and complex so, chain of causality. And I think that, that it, 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 it did. historically, the reason rates have gone, rates have lagged, you know, a lot of these indicators and the reason rates were cut in the past was not, it, it wasn't that you know, rates were high and then we cut rates and then that released a bunch of stuff that released increased supply, the depressed prices that then caused a recession via wealth effects. I don't think that's ever happened ever. Um, I think that what we saw in the past was that rates got cut because the economy was doing worse. So the rates were lagging, rates lagged. And so the rate cuts came in response to economic weakness in, instead of ahead of, you know, of course, economic. Well, money for always lags, right? Last, let's get last, last statements in. Um, all right. So I guess my, my closing statement is that I am worried about this, this story of, of commercial property collapsing from a long enough period of, of high interest rates. Although I do think interest rates are going to start coming down now. I think interest rates are about to start coming down. Uh, that, you know, so I'll be okay. Um, and I think, and I think uh, you know, so I'm not super duper worried about you know, three more years of, of high interest rates. I'm, I'm, you know, we may re like the recession story depends on us reaching some sort of threshold or breaking point before the Fed can cut rates enough to save the commercial property market, uh, after which the banking system suffers. And, uh, and we all, you know, sort of like, uh, suffer from that. I think this is possible. I'm not going to rule it out, but the sort of the 2010s taught me that long expansions don't die of old age, right? Um, you don't, you don't need some special thing to keep pumping up the economy or else it naturally crashes. The economy's natural state is to, is to employ people. The economy's natural state is to work. A normal economy is an economy that's doing okay, not an economy that's crashing. And I think that people of the millennial generation like, like us, uh, I think you, you also are, I'm of the older millennial generation, but people of the millennial generation have a form of PTSD from the Great Recession and then maybe from COVID, but especially from the Great Recession, where, you know, we just expect all expansions to end in tears because when we were kids, when we were young, we saw that happen. We saw, oh, everybody could see this housing bubble come and there was this inevitable destruction that lasted for a decade. And da, da, da. But like, but I think that that was unusual. That was weird that, um, you know, we will someday have a recession like that again, but it may be a while. And, um, and I think that a lot of people are PTSD into thinking that, that expansions die of old age and they just, you know, and I don't think they really do. And I think that all those years I spent in the 2010 sort of expecting a recession to come and then not seeing it come have, have taught me a lesson. I don't want to overlearn that lesson because I think a recession could come now, but I think, um, I'm not, I'm not going to sit around looking for like, you know, today, what's going to cause a recession tomorrow? What's going to cause a recession? I think a lot of finance and econ bloggers and writers I know and asset managers too did this, played this game during the 2010s for years and years. And I think that, and, and, and COVID came, but, but we never saw the economy just sort of collapse under its own weight from the 2010s expansion. And I, and I, 
you know, so I, I am not, I, I'm not super confident that's going to happen again. I think there's a possibility we just keep chugging on without a big shock to derail us because the economy's natural state is to do kind of okay. Awesome. It's a good closing statement. I'll get a nine. Um, I think the 2010s were actually the abnormal to uh, the last hundred years or so. So I don't disagree with you that the economy overall expands and overall productivity growth uh, happens just because people are more productive over time. There is this cumulative effect to technology and other things, and we're doing things a little bit better than the prior generation and general prosperity and quality of life do tend to increase over time. However, having said that, this period of low interest rates that started in the early 1980s was very structural and lasted for a really long time. So it started in 1980s and then um, accelerated when LTCM was bailed out and then this continuous level of government and um, really Fed intervention smoothed things out. And particularly post the global financial crisis, we went through a very unique period of time in the history of markets where we had this experiment with zero interest rates and in some place negative interest rates um, that caused massive debt accumulation and really the lowest volatility, the lowest financial volatility we've seen in 100 years. So yes, I don't disagree that generally speaking, things get better in the long run, but this type of everything is smooth is going to be fine without substantial amounts of volatility is actually not normal. So coming out of a period of very low rates where things were very easy, um, I think there's going to be a new equilibrium where there's just going to be a world with much more uncertainty and much more volatility. And frankly, it's going to be harder to make money investing the same way it was during the 2010s. That's a, that's a great, great place to close. Thank you both for, for coming on the podcast. And thank you both for your tremendous patience through, uh, th- through, uh, through what has been difficult. Uh, Itai, we'll have to have you uh, back on it at some point uh, in, a, in, a, in a better, uh, better Riverside situation um, so that we can, uh, we can have a part two. I think you guys. This had is only going to be a. This is going to be a forty-five minute podcast. Once yeah, we cut yeah. Out all and the imagine life. if we went into geopolitics, where we didn't even start doing that. <laughs> next uh, time, jeez. Yeah, next time, uh, guys. You, you both brought it today. It was really great. Thank you both for coming Thanks on. So much. Thanks, Eric. See you, man. Hey, everyone. Eric here. At Turpentine, we're building the first media outlet for tech people by tech people. We're the network behind the show you're listening to right now. We have a slate of hit shows across a range of topics and industries, from our AI and investing cluster of podcasts to shows that drive the conversation in tech with the most interesting thinkers, founders, investors, and influencers, like Econ 102 with Noah Smith. We're launching new shows every week, and we're looking for industry-leading sponsors. If you think that might be you and your company, email me at ericaturpentine.co. That's E-R-I-K at turpentine.co, and let's partner together.